This podcast contains adult language and graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, it's Kayla. It's Katie. And you're listening to Murder, Mayhem, and Merlot. It's our first episode. We are so very excited. So excited. Yes. Um, I can't believe we're finally doing this. Doing it. <laughs> We've probably talked about this for a, a couple years, I would say. I mean, but seriously talked about it. It's been a, it's been a couple of months. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we've thrown it around as an idea. Oh, yeah. For um, sure. But we're just committing now yeah. to this. Yeah. We, we usually just sit around, usually with a glass of wine, and talk about true crime. All of our other podcasts that we're listening to. Hey, did you listen to this episode? Did you watch this on Netflix? Did you see this new documentary, docuseries that came out? Yes. We have and a then, good time. And then Mikey, my husband, her cousin, was like, why don't y'all just do it yourselves? <laughs> so we were like, you know what? <laughs> Let's just do it. I mean, like yeah. I said, like we've tossed it around, but we've never actually really considered it as an idea. Hey, we mm-hmm. could do this. Yeah. Yeah, we've kind of shocked ourselves a little bit because we weren't talking about it for real. And then we just... All of a sudden, we're going to do it. We're going to do this. So So we are very excited to have everyone listening. Yes. Um, I hope everybody is relaxing or if you're, you know, driving or something, listening. We appreciate that, too. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to sit back with our glass of wine. You can sit back with some Sprite or... (laughs) Sprite? Something. (laughs) The first thing that came to your mind was Sprite. I I love me some Sprite. I do, too. (laughs) Or coffee. We like some coffee. We do. But yes. I think we'll mostly be doing this at nighttime, so probably one. Yes. Yes. But one. And if you are drinking wine or any other alcoholic beverage, please drink responsibly. Yes. No drinking and driving. <laughs> no drinking. Make sure that you're sitting at home comfortably. That's what we're doing. We're just going to hang out here yeah. at Kayla's house and in this little room that we made for, for this. We're going to do this. Yes. So... I guess I'll just get into the first case that we got. Kayla's, Kayla's going to take us on a deep dive here. Yeah, Katie made me do the first episode, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Yes, so I thought, you know, when we were talking about doing this, it was important to both of us that we did some local cases. Absolutely. We're both from East Tennessee, Northeast Tennessee, and we made a pact that it wouldn't be every episode, but that we would highlight, yeah, some cases around here, in the you know in Northeast Tennessee, the Appalachia. Yeah, you know. I would think it was very important to both of us to, mm-hmm. yeah, because sure. a lot of these stories are not stories that are told 
on a bigger platform. And even though we're just a small platform, you know, there is always that mm-hmm. small chance that it reaches end- somebody. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like kind of like our duty to make sure that right. voices around here get heard and victims are heard. You and know, everybody can be the voice for victims. Right. Their story yeah. can be told. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's important. Uh, any any chance I get to talk about true crime, I'm taking it. Yeah. And the interesting part is getting to see inside of the mind of, you know, a murderer because us average people out here, we don't understand that. So no. it is very intriguing to us. Yes. There's something very, like, people latch on to. Right. Um, but it is important. The biggest thing is being let the, the victim's story be told. They, like yes. you said, they don't have a voice anymore because it was taken from them. Mm-hmm. And it's just important to just get that out there. Yes, most definitely. Okay, so we're going to talk about the Lily Lid murders that happened in Belton, Tennessee. On the evening of April 6, 1997, an independent contractor, Mark Gabby, was on Van Hill Road in Belton, Tennessee. He was there to check out a new job site. He was walking along that road when he heard gunshots. He heard three gunshots go off. And then what was followed by, like, five or six gunshots after that. It startled him, but he didn't really think much about it. Right. Like, we're in the south or in the mountains. Like, people are out, especially if you live in a county. Yeah. We just hear gunshots all the time with people just target shooting and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, if I was out on that, if I was out like that and I heard gunshots, my first thought wouldn't be something, like, Sinister. Sinister. It would probably, my first thought would be someone's target practicing. Or I would worry that someone was hunting and I was near. Right. And you're like, I gotta go. Like, (laughs) yeah, like, um, I'm not dressed for this. Like, (laughs) I got to go. I got to go. (laughs) Um, so that's what he thought. He, you know, at first he really didn't think much about it. And then he heard what to him sounded like kids on a playground. Which was odd, considering there wasn't a playground around. That's there. a little eerie. Yeah. Like, laughter? Or just, like, just children, like, screaming and stuff. He just said it was, like, voices of children on a playground. That's such a weird description. It, it is. It, I, I don't know. That, that that's what probably would have would throw me off. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, you hear gunshots and you just hear kids on a playground. I'll yeah. be like, okay. Well, who's shooting around a playground? Yeah, this is <laughs> not good. Yeah. So he hears that, and then he hears more gunshots. At the same time that this is happening, a woman named Janet Brown was heading home on Payne Hollow Road at the exact same time that Mark Gabby was at the job site. Okay. So, she's heading home. She notices nothing out of the ordinary. This is, you know, same not. She's just driving. Just driving. And Van Hill, it basically runs the length of of Belton. It's a pretty long road. Payne Hollow, like, merges into Van Hill. Like, it, well, not really merges, but it, like... Meets. Meets, yeah. They were pretty, like, close to one another, they were in the, around the same area. They could hear the same gunshots. Right. Um, she was walking inside and she heard those three gunshots that Mark Abbey said that he heard. And she says there was a short pause and then she heard shots that were followed by a bunch of rapid ones. Little did they know that it was something very sinister happening. And there was a call put in from a house 
right near these gunshots that reported them. So somebody thought, like, this is off. Yeah, some... Yeah, they the pl- police were called. I'm not but sure But it was who neither... Called. Okay, so it we wasn't don't them. know. It wasn't okay, them. neither of them called. Yeah. Um, a call was placed to the police. Um, police officers show up. They see a car sitting on the side of the road. The cop pulls up to the car, and he notices that the tags are gone. And... As he is, he's like, he's going to call a wrecker, like a tow truck. And when he gets out of his car, he sees four bodies laying on the side of the road. Not wrecker. Yeah. These bodies would be Vidar, Delphina, Tabitha, and Peter Lilylid. The Lilylids were from Knoxville. Tennessee, which is about an hour from Belton, from Greene County, Tennessee. So they really weren't far from home. They really weren't. And that's just so sad. Yeah. Like once you learn like about them and like what happened, you're like, dang, you were so close to home. Right. I mean, an hour away. Yeah. Yeah. So what they soon learn about the Lily Lids is that they were devout Jehovah's Witness. On the evening of April 6, 1997, the Lily Lids were actually coming home from a Jehovah's Witness conference. Vidar Lily Lid was actually a immigrant from Sweden. He moved to the U.S. in 1985. He met Delphina and they got married in 1989. They had two children. They had... Um, Tabitha, who was born in 1990, and Peter, who was born in 1995. As they're leaving the conference, their friends ask them if they wanted to go, like, eat, kind of hang out, all of them after the conference, and they declined. It's, what I found in the source material is they just, they declined, number one, because they have two young kids, like, Right, I mean, one of them is still a baby. Yeah, like, Tabitha was six. Peter was two. Right. They just want to go home. They just want to go home. Yeah. They just want to get their kids. They just want to yeah. go home. And apparently they had, they were kind of stretched thin on money. They had bought like new attire for this conference. And plus I'm sure the conference costs money and, and all that. So, right. so they've just put their all into this conference. Yeah. Which kind really of further shows like that they were very, very devout yeah. in their faith. That's how Vidar and Delphina met. Was through, Jehovah's, was through Jehovah's, Witness. Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. So, Vidar and Delphina, they load up, and the kids, they load up in the van and they head home from Johnson City to Knoxville, Tennessee. And it's about an hour and 30 minutes. Two hours if you run into traffic. I mean, it's really Are not- you going to obey the speed limit is really the question. Well, you know, I'm not. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> Hour and a half. <laughs> Hour and a half. <laughs> Hour and 15. <laughs> um, so, yeah. They were just, they were heading home. They were going to stop and have a picnic with their kids. Let them stretch their legs. And that's what they did. They stopped at a rest stop, which was about 30 minutes into their trip. As they're eating, enjoying themselves, 
six young people pull in about the same time. This chance encounter would turn out to be deadly. These six young people were Natasha Cornett, Karen Howell, Dean Mullins, Joseph Reisner, Jason Bryant, and Crystal Sturgill. These six kids are at this, you know, rest stop. Vidar decides at that time that he's going to witness right, to these young people. Um, that's a big part of the Jehovah Witness faith. Right. I mean, I it mean, is Jehovah's, in Jehovah's Witness. Witness. I mean, yeah. it's in the name. So he he wants to talk to them about his religion, and you know, I'm sure to Vidar, these kids, they're you know, like, they're they're looking a little rough, right? They're all in black, you know, and and so like in his mind, and also at the time of mm-hmm. like when this is happening. I mean, you see, like, kids, like, emo, dressed, top mm-hmm. kids, and you're like, these are the people that I need to reach out to. Yeah. These are the ones that need that As help. misguided as that can be. Right. Right. And I'm yeah. sure, like, I, I'm sure that you're going to talk about, like, satanic panic. Like, so, you know, yeah. in his mind, he was like, I these have, kids, I have these, to talk to these, yeah. these kids. Yeah. So, that's what he does. And he, he walks up to... Joseph Reisner and Joseph Reisner feigns or pretends to be interested in what he's talking about. What a jackass. Yeah. He just was like, he's like, can I talk to you about, about my religion, about God? Do you know God? You know? And Joseph's like, yeah, let's, let's go over here and talk. What Vidar didn't know is that that was a complete and total setup. Uh, these six had full-on intended to steal a car, steal a van. The car they were in uh, was not going to make it to where they wanted to. Right. So I'm going to backtrack and tell you about these six individuals before I go any further. Okay, I'm ready. Yes. Um, all six of these kids, and I say kids, the, the ages range from 14 to 20. Okay. So a good majority of them are, are, are kids. Are kids, still, yes. At least legally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they were teenagers and young adults. Right. You know. Um, they were all from Kentucky, around the Pikeville, Pike County area. I'm going to talk about the ringleader, or the presumed ringleader. Okay. Her name was Natasha Cornett. She was born January 26, 1979, in Pike County, Kentucky. She was 19 at the time of the crime. Her parents were Madonna Wallen, and her father was a local policeman, Roger Burgess. And yes, she was the product of an affair. I just think it's very odd how the world works and the fact that her birth father mm-hmm. was a policeman yes. and she's going to end up committing a gruesome murder with a group of her friends yes like, and her dad she came from a policeman yeah that's just how it's, the so, it's so wild it's how the cookie crumbles sometimes oh, yeah. <laughs> oh how the turns have tabled yeah. <laughs> 
the turns of tables. <laughs> um, she did not have the best upbringing. Her mother left her stepfather, Ed Wallen, when she was just a toddler. They had a pretty toxic relationship. And she was raised... Her mom raised her as a single mother in a trailer. Uh, her mother was... She, Natasha does report that her mom was physically abusive. There were instances like when she would like be brushing her hair, she would get so aggravated with her, she would like start pulling the hair out. Oh my god. Hitting her with the brush, all of that. She was pretty scared of her mom. Right. And her Understandably mom would, so. Her mom would threaten to like abandon her and stuff too. So she's getting not only physical, but like the mental and emotional. emotional. Yes, very much so. She, in the sixth grade, developed an eating disorder and started self-harming by cutting herself. Mm -hmm. She was hospitalized um, and diagnosed with major depressive disorder. And obviously what happened, what took place with this crime is heinous and awful it's a tragedy however I can't talk about this case without talking about just the systematic failure right. in some of these kids lives right you know if if they were if they were put in better situations a lot of this probably wouldn't have happened right for instance you know like I just said she was hospital hospitalized but due to lack of insurance and funds, she was only hospitalized for like 11 days before they were like, she's got to go because right. you don't have the funds. Yeah. And insurance ain't going to pay for anymore. So she's getting, she's being untreated for this. Right. You know, she's not being treated for this. And so that just escalates things. She, Her mom didn't have the money to pay for therapy and for medication and what what you know you know what she needed what she needed and that contributes a lot to this mental health contributes a lot to this yeah and i mean in that time i mean it was almost there was a stigma around like mental health issues oh yeah even more than there is now i mean we've come a long way with mental health right and i mean i would say that we've not made the strides in mental health that we have until like honestly like late 2000s early like 2010s oh, yeah. honestly like yeah for sure so yeah there that's a lot of that going on oh yeah um she was arrested for the first time at 13 for threatening her mother with a knife she was arrested again at 14 for forgery i do not know what she forged at 14 <laughs> that's the wildest thing <laughs> when you were researching <laughs> this case and we were just sitting on the couch and you I think you were watching. I don't know if you were. I can't remember. I was if you watching were, some doc yeah, documentary. Yeah, like a, a documentary yeah. that someone had yeah, made, and it said that you know she had, you know, first threatened her mother and then just moved straight up to forgery. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was kind of shocked. I was like, yes. okay, <laughs> you know, fourteen-year-olds yeah. shoplifting, and then she's out here like, oh, I'm forging, I'm forging checks. It, <laughs> yeah, it's probably like forging checks, probably or checks or something. But she was like, I'm, I'm gonna go all the way. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Y'all are on some low level shit. She's advanced um, for yeah. 14. Like, she's I'm like. forging this shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're doing the five finger discount? No. <laughs> Not me. Not me. I'm forging checks Not around me, here. Yeah. <laughs> it's not funny, but it is. Um, sh- Gotta quit laughing. <laughs> um, she was bullied when she got into high school. And she actually dropped out in ninth grade. She was also suffering from substance abuse disorder. She was on things like heroin and meth, PCP, cocaine. I mean, you name it. She was, she was, she was doing she was it. it. Yeah, essentially. Um, and she started doing using drugs after she dropped out of high school. She actually got married to her longtime friend, Stephen Cornett, on her 17th birthday. However, she was, like, she was really happy. Like, they were happy. I mean, it was kind of toxic after a while. But at first, they were pretty happy. But Stephen ended up ending the marriage just after a few months. And it devastated her. And that kind of escalated her fascination with all things, like, occult. That was kind of, like, her tipping point into... A really, really dark place in her life, it sounds like. Yes, it was. Because everyone's, you know, we've all gone through that first heartbreak and that sound. Mm-hmm. I mean, hers was a marriage. That was right. I yeah. mean, it sounds like her first serious relationship that we know of and heartbreak. She was married. She was married. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, she, that would she be. She was married. Um, she, yeah, she got married on her 17th birthday. So, you know. She was doing the damn thing. She was. Yeah. But yeah, so she. That was kind of like just the tipping point, and she starts getting into a lot of this occult, occult stuff, occultism, <laughs> um, and she is reported to be the ringleader of the group. She denies that. However, I will say it became clear that she was at least the one that got this entire group of six people together. Right. They know each other through her and i mean if all of them end up saying hey it was her and then she's the one person that's well, like we'll get into all that it's not necessarily them blaming her for a lot of this okay okay it, it well especially the prom right okay so the other the other person would be karen howell i'm in no relation to karen howell <laughs> she, she was a howell so Howell's my maiden name. I don't think I have any family from Kentucky or, <laughs> like, you know. Um, we we got to do that 23Me to, just to make sure, though. We're going to do that yeah. <laughs> as soon as we're done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Karen Howell was born September 25th, 1979 in Delaware, Ohio. She was 17 at the time of the crime. Her family moved to Kentucky when she was just three years old. So she lived there for most of her life. Um, she had reported to, she reported to have been sexually abused between the ages of five and ten years old by her paternal uncle and his son. Mm. Yeah. You will find that the pattern with these kids is that most of them has had severe trauma. Right. Um, severe trauma they've had, you know, they haven't had the easiest lives. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of dysfunction in school, drug use. Um, and she had an interest in witchcraft to the point where, like, she started using Ouija boards and stuff nope. like that. Right. And, like, did the automatic writing. I, and try, I, you know. I ain't gonna touch no Ouija board. 
same, but at the same time, that's kind of... It is like a teenager thing. It is. Like, it is. It's, we all went to a sleepover at some point where one of your like, little let's girlfriends bring like, out a Ouija board. <laughs> and I was like, no. no I'm going home. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, I'm sick. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want my mommy. <laughs> you know? I mean, I could just imagine my mom, like, I mean, she... You know, I say that, but my mom used a Ouija board when she was a kid, but... I grew up in a very religious household, and that would have been a, a new new. New. <laughs> My mama would have. But it's it's not crazy for a teenager. No, to be not like, at all. Not about at all. A Ouija board. Yeah, no. But her mom did not like that at all. Uh, she found that she out she was doing that, and will make you angry. This will make you angry. I'm ready. Okay. Um, she brought in ministers who attempted to, quote unquote cast out the demons from her daughter. So they essentially did some <laughs> some backwoods Kentucky oh, version yeah. of an exorcism. Some hillbilly exorcism up in here in the mountains. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And tried to cast out those demons. And she was how old when this happened? So. Still I, a teenager. Yeah. She was still a teen. Like she was just in high school. Right. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she would do stuff like try to create love spells and stuff to get boys to date her and she claimed to see, like, different spirits and have hallucinations and hear voices and all that. So she dropped out of high school and lived with her dad, where she continued to earn her GED. So there, there's that, too. Um, she met Natasha Cornett at school, along with Joseph Reisner. She was also babysitting full-time during this time and saving up for a car. So, you know. She's being kind of productive. Yeah. I have to, I'll, I'll give her, I'll give young her that. Yeah. At, at mm-hmm. one point in her life, she was being it's productive, like, for her age. Yes. There was also Dean Mullins. He was born in 1978 in Harold, Kentucky. He was 19 at the time of the murders. That name just sounds like the villain. Dean Mullins? Dean Mullins. Just sounds like a villain in, like, a teenage, like, a Nickelodeon TV. That very specific. I know. Yeah. Like, you thought about that. I'm the queen of oddly specific descriptions. So I have been told. Y'all are forewarned. By a coworker. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So. Shout out to her. <laughs> <laughs> he left school in 1996 during, tw- like, during his 12th year, like 12th grade. He was so close. Uh, and during the time of the crime, he had been working on his GED. Mm-hmm. He had no criminal record. He was actually employed at a grocery store in Pikeville, Kentucky in 1993 and 1994. His family stated that his behavior worsened after becoming involved with Natasha. But he had planned to marry her. So they had something going on. Okay. Yeah. They had a little little romance going on. Uh... And then there was Joseph Reisner. He, well, you will find, is kind of considered, like, the co-lead of this situation. Okay. Um, of this group. He was born uh, October 13, 1976, in Columbia, Kentucky. He moved to Georgia when he was three. Or no, I'm sorry. He moved to Georgia when he was a young child. Um, he was 20 at the time of the murders, and he was the eldest of the group. He was described as a good student with, like, a good work ethic, 
until the separation of his mother and stepfather. That really affected him emotionally. Him and his mother moved back to Kentucky, where he started using drugs and was drinking. He had what is described, and I don't like how this is described, because, I mean, it really depends on how old the, the babysitters were. But he was reported to have had, like, sexual relationships with two babysitters when he was 12. Now, in my head, like, your babysitters are going to be 16 or older. Right. You know, ideally, that's how old a babysitter should be. Right. So you're telling me that this boy was sexually assaulted by his Exactly. That is not a sexual, sexual relationship. relationship. He was assaulted by his babysitter. Exactly. When he was 12. He could not consent. And you said multiple? Like two. Two? Yeah, two babysitters. I mean, one's too many, but... Yeah. And yeah. you know, in his 12-year-old mind, this is just... He doesn't know any better. He can't no, consent this, to No, this that. is... Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is just a thing that's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... And he failed 7th and 8th grade. His grades did improve, or started to improve, when he re reached 10th grade, uh, where he met... But that's when he met the other perpetrators, including right. his girlfriend, Karen Howell. That's who he was dating. So they're all kind of, like, linked up in this group. I yeah. mean, they all kind of have a boyfriend mm -hmm. or girlfriend within the group. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Um, he actually joined the Army in June of 95, but received administrative discharge after testing positive for THC. So, like, in my head, I'm, like, thinking... Just because of a little THC. I know. And it does like, suck because, like, I mean, it is, like, the military. I mean, it is and the military they have and they be, have to be that strict. Yeah. Right. But, it, I mean, it does suck that he could have had... I mean, his life could have been totally different mm -hmm. if he... Had stayed in the Army. Had, yeah. If he yeah. had stayed in the Army, mm -hmm. wouldn't have had THC in his system. I mean, he could have... Yeah. We could have never heard of this guy. Yeah. I know. Yeah. He earned his GED in 96 and was actually accepted to the Mayo Regional... Technology Center. Wow. Yeah. The other kid, and he is the kid because he was 14 and he was the youngest of the group. He was born, his name was Jason Bryant, and he was born July 18th in 1982 in Hellier, Kentucky. He was said to have had the IQ of like 85 and the emotional and social skills of an 11-year-old. He had a history of substance abuse um, as early as three. So that honestly probably is what led to, like, him being mentally handicapped oh, yeah, in some sure. sort of way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. In eighth grade, um, he was in eighth grade at Miller High School in Pike County. He met Natasha Cornett a month before the murders. Crystal Sturgill was our last person in this group. Uh, she was born March 13th in uh, 1979 in Harold, Kentucky. She was 18 at the time of the murders. She was a senior and also attended Floyd County Technical School. She was described as a slightly above average student. Her academic performance started to decline due to drugs and alcohol. She performed well on standardized tests though. Uh, she scored a 28 on her ACT, which <laughs> better than I did. Um, that's a good... That's a good score. She could yeah. have had a really great future yeah. and ahead she, of her. And she applied to several colleges. Uh, people often commented on the emotional neglect she suffered at home, though. And right. 
December of 96, she accused her stepfather of repeated sexual abuse. Mm. Yeah. She, so, and the, and the thing that really just, like, angers me when I think about this is she, so she lived approximately, like, 13 different places during, like, from the time she made the allegations to December. Um, she was living, like, her only option at the time, really, was to live with Natasha. And had it not been for that, had, had her, because fa her family did not believe her, um, her did not believe her about her like sexual abuse they didn't believe her right so that's why she wasn't allowed to stay there had she been believed she wouldn't have you know had to live with natasha right so um she had no history of violence um nor had a criminal record these kids had a lot of trauma they had a lot of shared experiences and they trauma bonded. That's that the like simplest way I can put it. They trauma bonded, which is very easy to do. And they were very misunderstood. You know, Natasha and Karen, they kind of got the rest of the group into this ritualistic occultism. And, you know, Natasha and Karen were into like they like they would drink there was reports that they would drink each other's blood and self-harm and okay yeah yeah maybe um, maybe they were like twilight what <laughs> <laughs> what did you just say to me <laughs> i said maybe they would have liked twilight I have no comment for that. I have, I have nothing to say to you. That was that was not for the pod. That was just for you, bitch. <laughs> Do you know what's... I keep, I'm okay. going to say funny, but it's not funny. You know what's kind of... Since you said that, you know why it's funny? Why? Because when, later on, when investigators would search Natasha's room, they found, like... Um... What was it called? It was they found like um vampire games. I knew it. Yeah, like they Yeah. Anyway, and, back and on track. Yeah. <laughs> they found like, you know, like spell books and stuff, but one of the things was finding a vampire game. Like vampire game. Good. And I'm like, you know what? That sounds like a good time. No, I'm just kidding. Kind of. So, these six individuals, they're all together. They're in this little group. They frequently, like, stayed at this motel in Pikeville or around Pikeville. That's kind of, like, just where they went to hang out, be themselves, you know, do drugs, drink. And the day before they decided to leave Pikeville, they had, like, trashed this motel and... There are reports that they had actually burnt a 666 into the carpet. They're like some of the family, like Jason's family and stuff, says that that absolutely did not happen. However, it wouldn't surprise me. Right. Um, they they're in this hotel, they do their little their rituals, whatever they did, you know, drink each other's blood, they 
and that was on a Sunday morning. They, the group after that went on a shopping spree and at Walmart, and then they went to Natasha's to get some sleep. They had vandalized that hotel room, and so they were kind of nervous to stay in the town. So that's when they decided they were they were going to skip town. They were leaving. Right. Now, I've read that they were headed to, to New Orleans. They felt like they could be themselves in New Orleans. That's not where they went, but that's what is reported that right. they were originally going to do. They, um... Was it because, like, it's... I mean, New Orleans has always been, like, a party town, or they thought they could just go down there and just fit in somewhere? Fit in, yes. So, they decided that they were going to take Joseph Risner's car. This car was not going to make it to where they wanted to go. They knew, eventually, they were going to have to get another car if they were going to make it that far south. Um, So, they, from the get-go, they had a plan to steal a car. That's what they were going to do. How they were going to do it, what they were going to do, I don't think they knew. But they were going to get a car. Yeah. They were going to get one. We're going to get a car. Um, So that kind of is what brought all of them together. Vidar is there talking to them about his religion. They see he has, you know, the, the Lily Lids had a pretty big van. Mm-hmm. That could fit all of them comfortably. And so that was just, that was a crime of opportunity. That was their opportunity. Right. So they are talking with Vidar. And Vidar is holding Peter. And Delphina has Tabitha. While Vidar is talking with Joseph and Jason, he... Um, Delphina starts talking with Karen and Natasha. And this is really heartbreaking, but Tabitha was actually, like, talking with Karen and Natasha, and she offered them, like, little Hershey kisses. And Natasha says that she it was her idea to steal the van. It was Joseph's idea... To hold them at gunpoint is what is what she says. Right. Joseph, when he he took the opportunity, they were talking, he whips out the gun and he's like, I'm sorry I have to do this, but we're gonna have to take your van. So Jason, Karen, Natasha, and Joseph all get in the car with the with the lily lids. Joseph is holding Vidar at gunpoint and tells him to drive. Jason with a um, nine millimeter. Jason has the twenty five caliber and is basically having it pointed at Delphina and the kids. Mm-hmm. And he just Joseph tells Vidar to drive. Um, Tabitha Tabitha gets really scared at this time. Peter really doesn't understand what's he going on. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't. Know. He's two. He doesn't understand. Right. Um, Tabitha is pretty scared and she's crying. Delphina was in the back, like singing, trying, trying to comfort her trying, babies. Yeah, trying to keep keep her calm. Right. Um, so, um, they're in they're in the van and Delphina's trying to reason with them. Mm-hmm. She's like, listen. I'm not going to even be able to remember what you look like. Because all 
the kids dress the same these days you know she's just trying right. to reason with them and be like just let us go don't hurt us you know and Natasha's like we're not gonna hurt you you know as long as you chill stay chill we're not gonna hurt you right. sort of thing so Vidar's driving he doesn't drive for long because from the rest stop to the Belton exit is three miles it's not long at all he pulls off the Belton exit onto a gravel road which was Pain Hollow mm-hmm. road um, they get all three of them out of the car, or all four of them out of the car, and line them up. At this point, they were trying to decide what they were going to do. Right. Now, remember, during during this, Mark Gabby's on Van Hill Road checking out the job site, um, and so this is this is all happening, you know, at the same time, and. They're trying to decide what they're going to do with them. The The problem with this case is there are conflicting stories. Mm-hmm. Because a few of them say one thing, a few of them say another thing. Like, even down to who was shot first. Right. Is 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 not... And the truth just lost somewhere in the middle, middle. that mm-hmm. we'll never know that for we'll sure. That we'll never know for sure, yeah. At some point, Vidar pulls out his wallet... And gives him his keys. And he's like, just leave us here. Don't hurt us. Just leave us here. Mm-hmm. And Joseph and Jason, they're like, what do we do? Um, I forgot to mention that when they were in the van, Crystal and Dean took Joseph's car. So they were riding separately. Okay. So they were in a car behind them. It's reported that they never got out of the car like Joseph and all them say that Dean and Crystal never got out of the car. Jason says that they did. Okay. Um, actually, Natasha and Karen say that as well that they they stayed in the car. Um. But anyway, so Joseph is trying to figure out what to do. Jason is trying to figure out what to do. Um. It becomes very apparent, and this is per Natasha on the stand, that they were going to die. That she says. That Jason and and them made the decision, like, they're going to die. Natasha, like, pretty much begs Delphine and Vidar to give her the kids. um, So that they don't get hurt. Right. And Vidar and and Delphine basically say, no, like, they're going to get harmed either way. They're staying with us. Like, you're not taking our kids. Right. So, they're on the side of the road. Joseph and Natasha and Karen... And the reason I'm saying them is because during the trial, which I'll get into here in a little bit, they're the only ones, and Jason, Jason, Joseph, Karen, and Natasha were the only ones to defend, to get on the stand and defend themselves. Uh Crystal and Dean never did. So we never hear their account of what happened. Right. Um, At least from a court standpoint, they never get on the stand and tell their side. So, according to these four, well, according to Natasha and Karen and Joseph, Jason shoots Vidar first. Okay, so there are a lot of discrepancies about what happened after they get on this road. I mean, there's discrepancies down to which gun was used first. There was two guns. There was a 9mm and a 25 caliber gun, handgun. It's also, like, they don't know there's conflicting reports about who was shot first. Karen and Joe say it was Vidar and that Tabitha was standing in front of him and that he was kind of holding her like around 
the front of her, you know? Right. And Natasha says it was Delphina who was shot first. Joe also says that Natasha is the one who told him to take the van and to use the gun. Natasha says that she's the one that tried to stop all these events from happening. You know, when they were at the rest stop, all of that. But all, but Karen, Joe, and Natasha all say Jason was the shooter. Right. He was the only shooter, is what they said. Now, if you remember, Mark Gabby said that he could tell that the, the second round of shots was from a large, large caliber gun. Right. So, how they how they describe it is that Jason shoots Vidar in the eye, mm. in the right eye, with the 9mm. Right. He shoots all of them in the head. And then he grabs the other gun from the foreboard of the van and continues to shoot them. Mm -hmm. Jason says that it was Joseph and Dean who were the shooters. Okay. And he also says that one of them also shot him in the hand. I, I don't no, I don't know of any report of that. Like, that's just what he said so on the So one stand. of the lily lids shot him in the no, head? No, that... Like, oh, one of the other kids, yes. like, in mm -hmm. the group, like, shot him. Did he to have get a... Him, to get him to take the fall for the shooting. Did he have a gunshot wound to his hand? I don't think so. I, I don't how, know. how did he think he was going to get by with this? I got shot in the hand <laughs> with a ghost gun. With a ghost... Yeah. Pew, pew. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, so there were two two guns involved, two, you know, different, like I said, three of them say Jason was the only shooter. Right. Then Jason says, no, no, it was Joseph and Dean who were the shooters. Me? A shooter? No. No. <laughs> no. No. Um, they said Vidar was shot. Delphina was shot. Now who was shot first is... But then it was also reported that, you know, Tabitha kind of stood over her mom's body and just cried. Mm, she saw I her parents die. Her. Huh? I just want to hug her. I know. She, she watched her parents die. Um, and then whoever the shooter was <laughs> went up and shot her and Peter. They all get back in the van. Joseph gets in the driver's side. They leave the car. As Joseph is trying to pull away... Now, at this time, they say that Crystal and Dean were just kind of in the car, just watching this whole thing go down. Right. Okay. And that Dean kind of just, like, hung his head. Like, um, they all get back in the van. Joseph is trying to calm down enough to drive. He starts to pull forward, and he notices a house up the road. This is the house that makes the 911 call for the shots. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, He starts to freak out, and he's like oh shit, there's a house up there. Right. Like, how did we not notice we're this? We're done. Like, we're yeah. caught. He starts to freak out and he's trying to pull the car. He backs the car up and runs over the lily lids. Natasha says that she was watching him struggle with, like, the steering wheel and then she looks out the back window and sees him run over the lily lids. So not only have they been shot, they've also they've been, also been, been run, run over. over. Mm -hmm. So they take off. The 911 call was placed to report these gunshots. A police officer, like I said earlier, was driving down. He sees the car and he starts to call it in. Mm -hmm. When he gets out of his car is when he sees the bodies. 
Vidar and Delfina were laying with their toes facing the road. And a kid each, like Peter was laying across one, Tabitha was, like they were laying across their parents. Peter and Tabitha, when he went to check on them, were still alive. Barely, obviously. They were both shot in right. the head. Vidar and Peter both were shot in the right eye. That will come into play later. That whole, them being shot in the right eye has significance okay. here. Some investigators state that there was a reason that the bodies were placed that way because it made a cross. That's what I was just thinking. Is, I mean, it sounds like it makes a cross. Yeah, like it was part of a ritualistic killing. Right. Natasha and Karen and all, they deny this, but that's what investigators say, that this was part of a ritualistic killing. The, the police officer who finds them, you know, the rescue, they take Tabitha and Peter to the hospital they don't know who the, the at this time they don't know who this family is right they they don't know their names they don't know a thing so when peter and tabitha go to the hospital like peter in an interview because he he was the lone survivor of this he miraculously survives this he says later that he was john doe right the at hospital. the hospital yeah the, the kids get taken the parents are announced dead mm-hmm. at the scene the six the kentucky six decide that they're going to go to Mexico. And they attempt... Forget New Orleans. Yeah. They're leaving the country now. They're like, ooh, yeah, we gotta leave the country. Um, They decide they're gonna take this van and they're gonna go into Mexico. It takes a couple of days to get there. Now, at this point, officers know who this family is. That it was their van. Their van is gone. So they put a bolo or like, like be on the lookout for this van and they basically say you know they're armed and dangerous but we're looking for this van and they get to the Mexico border in Arizona and they're turned away because obviously they do not have right they you know they do not have the um identification they think they could just drive right on through and they're good to go. <laughs> to get through the border. Yeah. And they're turned away and, you know, they run their plates and realize, ooh, this isn't good. We're, we're, we're supposed to be looking for you. Yeah, we're looking for you. So they all, they all get arrested and they are, arre- they are arrested at the Mexico border in Arizona in the Lily Liz van. They are, they see a judge in Arizona who extradites them back to Tennessee. When they... Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. When they... searched the van, they found, like, really lewd pictures of this group. I mean, there was, like, a photo album laying on top of Tabitha's doll. Yeah, it was just, like... They're disgusting. Yes. They're disgusting humans. Yes. And... Let me tell you that the adults of the group, which was Crystal, Joseph, Dean, and Natasha, mm-hmm. they're they're ta- they're extradited back to Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So the two minors, which was Karen and Jason, mm-hmm. their attorneys they tried to fight extradition, so they were not brought back with the adults. Mm-hmm. The judge was like, "No, right? No, you're going. You're going. You're going. You're going." You did. Um, you did a big kid crime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can handle it like a big kid. The reason they didn't want to do that 
is because by the time that they are caught and arrested, all of East Tennessee knows about this crime. Oh, yeah. All of Belton and Greene County know about this crime. There was a shockwave throughout the town. I don't think, unless you've been to Belton, you don't understand how small this town is. Right, right. In 1997, there was roughly 321 people. That was the population. 321 people. Okay. So, there was a mob waiting for these people when they came back into town. Mm -hmm. They, you know, the town absolutely as they should have, wanted to see justice be served. Oh, yeah. And they they were at the they were at the jail waiting for them to come up. So because of Jason and Karen trying to fight extradition, they did miss the mob. They didn't miss the reporters. They had to face the reporters. Right. And and reporters came from all over. I mean, there were even reporters that came from Vidar's home country in Sweden who oh, came wow. who came for this right. um arraignment because i'm sure like he has family over there still yeah yeah he does yeah so yeah they absolutely yeah they they came from all they were over. like it's game on yeah they they came from all over for this you know for the the town and for you know tennessee really just as a whole for them it was basically in a lot of their minds this was a fight between good and evil and good had to win absolutely good had to win you know it was because the kid you know a lot of it had to do with the fact that these these young adults were into occultism that did not help you were in the bible belt you were in the buckle of the bible belt that was that left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths you know oh yeah it did and that did not help i mean like you said i mean it literally was a battle between good and evil In, in a lot of people's minds yeah it was literally good and evil the devil versus God in, God. Their, in their eyes. Yeah, for sure. So before Jason and Karen got there, the older defendants were arraigned on first degree murder. Mm-hmm. Then Jason and Karen got there and they were also arraigned. They got there like a day later and they were arraigned mm-hmm. and um, they were arraigned on first degree murder. Now they had originally put in a not guilty plea. Eric Hahn was the attorney that was hired to represent Natasha Cornett. He ended up being really um, controversial for her defense. The way he went about Natasha's defense was unconventional, to say the least. Especially in the way he spoke about Natasha. It just wasn't what you would normally see with an attorney. He was going for... I don't know if he was like going for a shock factor or or what, but he openly talked about Natasha and the group and about their rituals, drinking each other's blood um, to to reporters. He he openly talked about this, and it just it the the other attorneys like for the other defendants were like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, like I mean, you would think that he would take a standpoint of. Well, let me try to make my, you know, make her sound like she's good. You know, she's a good person. She's done yeah. all these great things. But, yeah. I mean, also I can kind of see where, like, he's coming from, though. Just, you know, to kind of play devil's advocate. 
Like if he no pun intended no no yeah. pun intended. like if he goes out there and he just tells all of these crazy things, he's like, yeah, this 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 and this are true. She did all of these crazy things, and you can think what you want about that, but she didn't do this. You know, like he maybe mm-hmm. a part of his defense was if I go out there and I say all of these crazy things that she's done mm-hmm. and just go ahead and admit to that for her, and she's willing to admit to it on a stand, and then you know. Hey, we're being honest about this, so why would I be lying about her being not guilty? So maybe that was like part of it for him. I don't, I don't know. I really don't know where he, what he was thinking with that. It's not something I've seen. Or maybe he just wasn't a great lawyer. I mean, that, could, <laughs> yeah. that could have been it. Um, he encouraged Natasha to talk about her fascination with Satan and occultism. Okay. She would talk about how she believed she was the daughter of Satan. She would. So it. Oh dear. In, in a documentary I'll watch, which all of the sources that I have are going to be in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but in one of my sources, it said that... I, okay, I just want you to think about Natasha's name, okay? Spell it backwards. I need a pen and paper, ma'am. Aw, Satan. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that just, like... That was a big point for Natasha. Oh, she thought her mama was planning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she would regularly sign her name off Satan. I <laughs> I don't have words. <laughs> she really thought this through. <laughs> she really I mean, thought this through. To be honest, if you're really into that stuff and you're looking at your name and you're like, oh, oh shit. shit. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, from day one, I was destined. From day one. Yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. What's my name back? It ain't all Satan. It ain't, it ain't. ain't. So, yeah, she regularly talked about that. um, And that, you know, whether you think that was a good strategy or not, but it followed Natasha through the entire remainder of her case. Even after Eric was removed as her attorney, which he was removed. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go with bad lawyer. Yeah. I try to play devil's advocate a little bit, but I'm going to go with bad lawyer. Mm-hmm. Devil's advocate. That's going to make me giggle if you say that again. Devil's advocate. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, when investigators searched Natasha's room, like I said earlier, they found Ouija board spell books and vampire game books. Vampire game books. Okay. Okay. Which, I don't know, vampire game books sound kind of cool, but... I don't know, like, 12-year-old Twilight me (laughs) would have absolutely played a vampire game, like... I know, yeah. But not in the same sense that All Satan was. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. it was the strategy from the group's attorneys that they most of them would change their opinions okay so I think it was the strategy of their teams right for what (laughs) strategy from who (laughs) yeah 
because it was a strategy from hell. No. So it was a, the strategy, the plan for at least the like three of the six to right. dramatically change their appearance. Right. Uh, for example, Dean Mullins, he cut his hair to look more studious. Uh, Crystal Sturgill also. She had like long, like pretty hair when she was arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, she cut it to like really short. Like pixie, not necessarily pixie, but it was a shortcut. Right. Something that's going to make her look more of like a woman. Like, it you looked, know? No, it was to make her look more innocent. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I didn't understand it either. I mean, eh. but Joseph Reisner was the most shocking transformation because he had this long hair that, you know, most like rocker. Right. Back then, you know. You know. Yeah people and he had like a goatee he cut all that off i mean he looked like a different person when he took the stand from his picture when he was arrested to what he looked like when he took the stand i encourage anybody to go like look it up looking it up he looked so different um they wanted to have separate trials I get the want for that, especially for the younger two, for the minors. I get them wanting to have separate trials. Right. However, James Beckner, Judge James Beckner, decided to try them all together instead of separate trials. This judge was not playing around. No, he... I mean, I can see why, like I said, the defense wanted separate trials, especially for the minors, like I said. Um, but I can also understand them trying them together because they did the crime together. Right. Um, and also, I mean, you, if I were one of the family members, you know, of the Lily Lids, I would want to sit through this six times. True. Right. I mean, I yeah. would not. So, like, I mean, that would be. That would be awful. Horrible. Yeah. Awful. To yeah. just have to sit and listen to every and detail they shouldn't. six times. No, no, absolutely not. No. And on on you know, for the defense, I get it because you want to look at each of these kids individually, right? And and take into account each of them, like have a separate case for each of them, right? Right. Um but, but I mean they did the, the crime time, together. Yeah, they didn't commit this crime as individuals. Yeah. They did it as, as a, group. a group. Yep. Um, and like I said, they all pleaded, they originally all pleaded not guilty. It would have been the largest trial in Tennessee history. It was planned to take like a month, a month, like three months, four to six weeks was the time that they had planned for this trial. Right. Um, however, the day before jury selection, they changed their plea to not guilty, to guilty. Okay. And that was to avoid the death penalty. Right. Because this is Tennessee and that was and absolutely on the table. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. So. Tennessee's, Tennessee's going to do the damn thing. They are. They are. Yeah. Um, each of the attorneys, they talked about each of the defendant's participation. Right. Jason took the stand. Natasha took the stand, Karen took the stand, and Joseph took the stand. The problem was they each told 
little bit of a different story. Right. So each of the each of the attorneys for the defendants, they made sure to like like for Natasha, her attorney, you know, after Eric was booted, <laughs> he was gone. He's gone. They made sure Natasha told about the abuse that she was subjected to as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, they made sure to talk that Karen talked about her hallucinations, her voices, the voices she heard. Her getting into witchcraft, her mom having essentially an exorcism done on her. They had someone talk to the judge about how, you know, Jason has some mental disabilities. Right. And in his case, like, I do understand that a little bit. I mean, with them saying that he had the mind of an 11-year-old. I I mean, mean, he was 14. Right. He's the youngest of the group. And... He says that Joseph and Dean did the killing, did the shooting, and put it off on him. Right. That the whole group decided to put it on him. Right. It didn't matter, though, how much they tried, the defense tried. They knew they pleaded guilty. They were going to jail. You know, they all knew that. I think it was just trying to get... Maybe in their mind, if they put it on the youngest person and the mm-hmm. person who has the mind, you know, yes. of an 11-year-old, they can all get off with mm-hmm. the slap on the wrist. And where he is 14 years old and, you know, has these mental handicaps that he won't get, you know, punished as hard by the law mm-hmm. because of his age and how, you know, he was, you know, slow and things of that nature. So they probably thought he's a great scapegoat because we can, we can all get off virtually scotch-free and I mean, that could have been, that definitely could have been the, um, the thought process with that. I don't know. Or it's just, he's the easiest target. Yeah. Yeah. Because they know. don't, they don't seem like the kind of kids who put a lot of thought into things to me. <laughs> yeah, no. <So. laughs> now, like I said, it didn't matter what they said, really. Though, like they they did they pleaded their case. They pleaded, you know, that these kids were not brought up in the best situations. A lot of them, but the judge for each of them gave them the strictest punishment he could, which was life with. Out the possibility of parole for all of them, for each of them, yes, even, even Jason, Afford. yeah, wow. and even Dean and Crystal. They they thought Dean and Crystal had the best chance of getting the lesser sentences, considering they were not in the van, right? That they were in the car, but the judge told them that they had plenty of opportunity. To, to get stop help, it. yeah. I mean, if anything, they had the the best opportunity because they were in a separate car. Yeah, I mean, they could have just driven off and mm-hmm. went to that house that it ultimately ended up being the house yeah. that called nine one one and said, "Hey, we're just taken driven to a police station." You know, yeah, what this I'm is saying? happening. Yeah. Like each of them, he said, "You know, you you may have not pulled the trigger, but you didn't you, do anything you didn't to do stop anything it or to help them after it was." Right, you didn't done. do anything to help, especially the kid. Like you did nothing. Yeah, um, with both of the kids laying there, 
barely mm-hmm. alive, but still alive. Yeah. You did nothing. Now, it was, you know, Joseph, who Vidar was witnessing to that day, and Jason. It was, who pulled the gun? Joseph. Mm-hmm. Agreed. He forced them into the van. But he was the only one to apologize to the family. Wow. Yeah. Jason's dad apologized. And when he got on the stand to like, you know, they brought him as a witness, like to his son's character and stuff. Mm-hmm. He apologized to them. Um, but yeah, as far as the defendants go, Joseph was the only one that apologized. Okay. Yeah. Take what you want from that, but yeah. So the judge never believed that Jason was the only shooter. And I kind of agree. I think there was two different guns. Yeah. Joseph was holding one. Jason was holding the other. Mm-hmm. In the van. You know, I mean, we will never know, you know. Um, the district attorney, Berkeley Bells, didn't believe any of their accounts of what happened. What he thinks happened is he thinks that all six of them had set out to murder that day mm-hmm. because of, like, as a ritual, they murdered on April 6th. And I told you earlier that, you know, everyone, all four of the victims were shot in the head, mm-hmm. but they also had more gunshot wounds. Mm-hmm. Vidar and Delfina had gunshot wounds, like, Vidar had it in his chest. Um, but it made, like, the gunshot wounds in, in Vidar's chest made a um, three-pointed star. Delfina had one in her abdomen that made a three-pointed star. So, April 6th, by six people, two three-pointed stars, which would equal six. I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't feel that way either. That's just kind of two on the nose. It is. Um... So them saying, we just were going to take a car, you know. Yeah. Also, like I said earlier, and then I told you that this was going to be kind of significant. Peter and Vidar, they were both shot in the right eye. Mm -hmm. Apparently that has, that holds a significance in occultism. The right eye. Okay. Um, When they were arrested, most of them had a possession of the lily lids. They had Tabitha's Hello Kitty locket. They had a picture of Tabitha. They had Vidar and Delfina's social security cards. They kind of believed that holding possessions of the dead like gave them special powers. Right. Now, Natasha and Karen both deny this. That this was not it at all. But I I kind of get where they're coming from. And then yeah, they were I mean, kind of I laid out as it. crosses, like yeah. I mean, it it all it all feels very ritualistic. It does feel very ritualistic. Like you yes. you shot the stars in them. It was yes. like you said, six people did it on April sixth. Then yes. the two three pointed stars, the significance of the right eye. Yeah, you know. Now, you know, Peter did survive. He miraculously he survived. He had a gunshot wound to the head and to the chest. Oh 
he was permanently disabled because of this. He oh. he he's blind in one eye and his right eye. Right. And he has been in a wheelchair for most of his life. I mean, he can use like walking stick, like crutches, oh. but um but you know, he after that Delphina's sister from Florida and Vidar's sister from Sweden fought for custody for Peter. Right. He ended up going to Sweden with Vidar's sister with his aunt. Which I think, like, you know, not, you know, I think getting away either going to Florida or Sweden was good, but, you know, being able to just remove him from... That, yeah, I like, I'm, uh, I get that. Yeah. I think it's good that he got away from it all. Right. And was able to have a somewhat... Right. And I'm happy that, you know, he had, like, multiple family members that were, like, yeah. Like, I'll take him. Like, you know, yeah. we'll raise him exactly. as our own. Yeah. Like, that is just... And he frequently visited Knoxville. Right. Like, he has frequently visited Knoxville. And um, he now is married. He lives mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, He's in, like, IT. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you gotta have some serious brains for IT. Yeah, he <laughs> actually, re- you know, when I was, like, reading about him... He got to meet up with the officer who stood outside his hospital room. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, and he says he doesn't remember anything. Right. I mean, you know. And and a lot of that's probably because he's two. He was was two. two. Yeah, he was two years old. And another thing is his brain has totally shut that out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that would be... To protect itself. Yeah. Yes. So uh, if there was any memories, I mean... Yeah, he don't have But, I mean, I can't, you know, I can't really remember anything from when I was two, I don't think, so... Yeah. I would, you know... Exactly. So, he was really young, and that's a blessing in of itself, I think, is... I mean, I hate that he can't remember his parents, though, and his sister. Like, that's the only thing that does suck about the situation is... You know, they were stripped from him when he was Mm -hmm. too young to be able to hold these memories. Yeah. But like you said, in the same hand, you also wouldn't want a child to remember that. Because, you know, I mean, if his sister would have survived, she would have remembered it. Mm -hmm. You know, but I do, I do just hate for him that he can't remember. And I mean, by all accounts, it sounds like his parents were very loving parents you know his mama singing to them and stuff yeah like vidar was you know he worked outside the home Mm -hmm. and delphina was a stay-at-home mom right loved being a mom and you know they were just a normal they were just good people like they just sound Mm -hmm. like good people yeah quiet you know they kept to themselves a lot they were very they were very close-knit right very family oriented very family oriented and they just had this chance meeting with six individuals who had nothing good in mind right and And i mean vidar wholeheartedly thought that he was going to do something something good good. yeah whether you agree with that tactic or not it like it it doesn't like doesn't just let that person do what they need to do say what they need to say it's Mm -hmm. not going to i mean a a part of me thinks that like obviously this was a crime of opportunity they saw the van i don't think i don't think they really looked at the lily lids as individuals as a father as a mother as kid they just saw opportunity opportunity and also this guy who they they leave kentucky 
because they are ostracized a lot from their community because mm-hmm. they're they don't they're not what the society norm. think the norm they're not right. what society so then they you know they're at this rest stop and this guy comes up to them talking about his religion and they're like here we go it just here we go click something in them yeah yeah and but it does to me like it feels planned like to me it feels like they did in fact plan on killing someone yeah i i truly like after listening to this i truly believe that i think that no matter what they say to me it just i feel like they were going to kill someone no matter what yeah while getting a car mm-hmm. um because it was very ritualistic whether they admit to it or not mm-hmm. by everything that you know here and today like it does sound like there was some kind of ritual in their mind whatever that may be i mean they 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 regularly yeah so i i wholeheartedly believe that they were going to kill someone mm-hmm. and i don't think that it was any specific person in their mind i think that they just wanted to kill somebody or kill multiple people which mm-hmm. they did and unfortunately the lily lids just happened wrong to place, be wrong place wrong time yeah yep so yep that's the that's the lily lid murders well yeah happened right up the road from us really yeah. i mean i pass by that rest stop all the time right i drive on ben hill road do they the have time. like something like anything memorialized or i anything? think that like they have when the, the you know the day of the murders rolls around right. they'll have like a little memorial service and stuff right. and there's like i think there's like a cross and you know right. what you would see on the side of the road like for car crash right. victims and stuff you'll see that but um yeah, it's wild to think that I've, like, driven yeah. past this all, you know, I drive past this all the time. Or, and it's just blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Because you just, I mean, you don't think from us coming from, you know, these, which that's a significantly smaller town population than where I'm from. Or but from where I'm, you know, we, I'm from Kingsport. And I'm from Churchill, Churchill. So, I mean, we've got, yeah. like, but, you know... It is crazy. And I've heard my dad talk about this case before, which I wasn't alive. I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I was. <laughs> but I don't really remember it right. being talked about. I, what I remember, I, I can remember my dad, like, sometimes driving to, like, my pap and granny's house. Him, because we talked about, I mean, my dad was a true crime fan, too. But, Same. And he, Same. Yeah. And I remember him mentioning it a couple of times. Like, yeah. we would pass the rest stop. Yeah. Same with my dad. Like we would a- pass the rest stop, and dad would be like, you know, there was a family who... That was murdered right That there. was murdered. Yeah, yeah, that was taken and murdered. Yeah, yeah. I've heard my dad, right up like... up from your grandparents' house. Like, that's what he would... Yeah, I've heard my mm-hmm. dad mention it in passing. But I, mm-hmm. I've never really, like, looked into it. Yeah. You know, or, or seen anyone really go into it. Yeah, it's... But... It's real sad. Yeah, and it is. It's really sad. And to- was totally... Unnecessary. Unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. So, so are they all still in? Yes, they're all still serving their prison sentences, and um, I think some of them have tried to get lesser sentences, mm-hmm. and have tried to plead their not not necessarily their innocence, just their um. I was a kid. Sin- significance in what happened, right. um, especially like Crystal and Dean, and right? Them being in the car. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. So, 
I think this is a lesson for choose your friends wisely. Oh yeah. Um, um, and for all of you listening from around here, I'm sure you've heard your grandparents say it or maybe your parents, but this is a prime example of you stirring shit, get the smell on you. Yeah, you sure do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it also is a glaring just representation of what lack of mental health Mm -hmm. systemic failure systemic failure and just lack of mental health can do to like it is a just catastrophic like and i will say too the pain of this crime did not just end when all of them went to jail right just the ripple effect of this crime like it didn't end when they went to jail jason bryant's father committed suicide not too long after his son's sentencing, he was found hanging from a tree. Oh my god. Yeah. He just could not... Couldn't handle it. Couldn't deal with his son pleading guilty to, to the murders. And so, it just shows you, like, it just doesn't end with... Right. It affects every... Once there's justice served, in any case, the gray cloud over the families and the friends and the community it's there lingers yeah all the time mm -hmm. yeah like that community needed justice that family needed justice yeah um absolutely and they got it but that doesn't mean that the pain ended yeah and that doesn't mean that they didn't feel that for and that the family the families still. on both sides still don't feel you know so yeah that's that was a lily lid case and your case is next. Mine is next. You are going to hit us with with a with a doozy. With I'm, a big I'm, one. I'm going to hit us with a big one. Yeah, I mean, I it just blows my mind that we don't we didn't hear about this sooner. Right, I'm very excited. Yeah. Um, but for now, we um just want to thank you guys for listening and just bear this with is us. Our first episode. Yeah. Just bear with us. We're yeah. going to get better the more episodes that we do. So thank you for all of the support. Mm -hmm. um, and we hope that you'll stick around with us and listen to more episodes. And yeah, hope that you'll okay. enjoy yourselves. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, I was about to say see you next time, but we're not actually seeing you. We'll just. We hope you listen next time. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> All of the sources we used for this episode will be linked in our show notes. We'd like to thank Mikey Kinley for audio and editing, and our friend Abel and Yulaberry for our cover art. Make sure to like and follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Our Instagram is M three podcast and you can find us on facebook under the name of our podcast which is murder mayhem and merlot <laughs>